0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave Modson. I know a lot of you know me, but uh, I just want to say that uh, this is a landmark day for me. In all the times that I've been teaching and preaching, this is the first time I'm going to deliver the Sunday sermon at my home church. And people have asked me, well, how do you feel about this? And I said, uh, I'm at once scared, excited, and humbled, because it's always uh, a treasure to handle God's word, and I want to handle it right for his glory. And we're going to take a look at the prophet Zechariah. And uh, this is a massive prophecy of God. And the first couple of times I looked at it, I said, huh, what is this? There's a lot in it. There's a lot of symbolism. There's just a lot of material in this. But as I dived into it and and took a good look and that this is great stuff. This is God truly speaking to his people and delivering a message of sure hope. So without any further ado, we will bring this before the throne of grace. Father... It is a humbling privilege to be able to bring your word to your people, and it's your perfect word. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And may I preach this with clarity, wisdom, and grace, passion, purpose, and precision. And may it take, take root in, in hearts that are ready to receive you, and if it be your will to move people to you who have never known you before. But Lord, we do all this for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, amen. Zechariah is called the prophet of Messiah's glory by theologian Merrill Unger. He was a priest and a prophet, and a contemporary of Haggai, who we heard about last week from Pastor Brandon. His prophecy was given approximately two months after Haggai's. And I found it interesting in the first couple of verses of the book that Zechariah, the name means God remembers, he is the son of Bechariah, which means God blesses son of Ido, which means in his time. And I think that's a wonderful summary of this book. God remembers, God blesses, in his time. And at this point in redemptive history, the Israelites have returned from the exile, uh, the Babylonian exile that was 70 years long when they were released by the decree of King Cyrus in 583 BC. They began rebuilding the walls and the temple as they were instructed, but because of fierce opposition, and indifference from the people. Remember last week, Pastor Brandon said, they were told by Haggai, consider yourselves, you're, you're spending more time on your own houses than you are God's house. So the, the work ceased, and nothing was done for 16 years. You can see Ezra chapters 4 and 5 for the details on that. And at the end of these 16 years, the Lord commissions Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy, to, prof- to move the people, motivate them to finish this work. Whereas Haggai's prophecy was a rebuke to the people, hey, get this going, man. You've got to get this done. You know, this is all about you folks for God's glory. Zechariah's prophecy was the one of encouragement because of the sure message, of the sure hope that Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, would gloriously occupy the throne. And four years later, the work was completed. Now, John MacArthur has stated that this book, Zechariah, is the most messianic, most apocalyptic, and most eschatological in the Old Testament. And next to Isaiah, the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament, as we'll see. Now, I know we used a couple of uh, heavy-duty terms here, so let me break a little bit of that down for you. Messiah, messianic, refers to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As we can see, this book is all about him. He appears in it, over it, through it. This book is all about Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic means a revelation, a disclosure, According to Vine's Bible Dictionary, the symbolic forecast of the final judgments of God as dispensed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. And eschatological is from the Greek word eschaton, meaning last or final. And that is events concerning the end of this world as we know it and the judgments of God that will be enacted at that time. That's heavy stuff and it's important for us. MacArthur continues Zechariah is filled with visions. Prophecies, signs, celestial visitors, and and, and uh, the message of God Himself. It's also practical, dealing with issues like repentance, divine care, salvation, and holy living. And we have to keep in mind, too, the era of Old Testament prophecy was about to come to an end. Only Malachi remained. And it's as if God wanted to really end this Old Testament prophet era with, with a flourish, with, with a message of an outburst of abundant promise for the future to sustain the people for the 400 years of silence that was to come until John the Baptist spoke as the first New Testament prophet. And let me add that I would think that the book of Zechariah is something we can look at to help sustain us during the silent years until the return of Jesus Christ. So to do the overall, we're going to do a flyover here, and there's a lot of stuff, and let me apologize if maybe I go too fast or leave things out. I want, as I said, make best use of the time, but we're going to do an overview of the whole 14 chapters but we're going to also then drill down on one important point that I believe this book really hits home on. Chapter 1 begins with a call to repentance. And Zechariah reminds the people of what their fathers did when they didn't listen and they you know, had received the judgments of God. And he would do just what he said. So if they were faithful, God would reward that. And from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way to chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 8, Zechariah records eight visions from God, given to him in one night. Now these aren't dreams, they're not thoughts, they're not contemplations, they are actual visions given to him by God in one night. That must have made for one truly amazing night. The first vision in chapter 1 is a man on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees with three horses behind him, of the colors red, white, and sorrel, which is a brownish color. There's a similar picture of this in Revelation 6, 1 to 8. And he begins, Zechariah begins a conversation, a running conversation with two angels, the angel who spoke to me, and the other one called the angel of the Lord. And we know from scripture that whenever the angel of the Lord is mentioned, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. So it's, it's a, Zechariah's actually having a conversation with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ throughout this. And the, uh, the first vision is the, Four horsemen are patrolling the earth, and they say that the earth is at rest with the nations that oppressed Israel. And what's going on here is that they see that Israel has been oppressed by many nations. They've been in exile for 70 years, and like, it seems like they're flourishing, these, these nations that, that you know, caused all this oppression. But the Lord God says that he is exceedingly jealous for them, and he will have mercy on them. And the Lord of Hosts responds with a comforting answer, saying that he has great love for them, and that his cities again shall overflow with prosperity. Zechariah is starting to hit home on that message of hope. The second vision, also in chapter 1, is one of horns and craftsmen. Now, horns in the Bible is a symbol of power, and the horns represent the nations that had oppressed Israel. And the craftsmen, usually stone or metal or woodworkers, they represent the nations that overthrow the four horns. And verse 21 says, And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The third vision comes in chapter 2. It's the vision of a man with a measuring line and contains more promises of comfort to his people. This most likely re- represents the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem, and it's only a preview of what is to come. It's, it's going to be the city that's going to be rebuilt at the, um, at the messianic time. Right now they're building it for the time that God has designated But he says the the language of the vision can't be filled historically in that its scope extends beyond the time of Zechariah. He says here, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. There's going to be a whole bunch of people and livestock there. And there will build a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory in her midst. The wall of fire symbolizes the wall of fire, or the pillar of fire as they were in the Exodus, or the cloud that followed them. Again, it's, it's another symbolic representation. And many nations shall join themselves in the Lord that day, and they shall be my people. The fourth vision, which is also described in chapter 3, is of Joshua, the high priest. Joshua was the actual high priest who came uh, from the first group that returned from the exile. The Lord himself, Joshua is standing in front of everybody in filthy clothes. And the Lord himself accuses the adversary The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And he has chosen Jerusalem. Now, even though it's Joshua, the actual high priest, he is symbolic of all of Jerusalem. And the filthy garments are taken from him. The filthy garments represent continual sin of the nation. And he's given clean garments, which represents the, you know, the, the sins being expunged and, him being, and the nation being purified. And he says, I will clothe you with pure vestments. And it's the indicative of the future cleansing of the nation that's going to happen. Then Zechariah tells those present to put a clean turban on Joshua. This was a, a turban was a big part of the high priest's attire. and Of course, uh, according to Exodus, it had the words holy to the Lord described on top of it. And this symbolizes the restoration of Israel's priestly standing with God. Then the angel of the Lord assured Joshua and gave him a charge to walk in the Lord's ways. Then he also tells Joshua that he will send his servant, the branch, another reference to Christ, the one of humble beginnings. Uh, Isaiah is also one who describes Jesus Christ as the branch. This passage here describes him as the stone, the stone, the cornerstone, the the rock of stumbling, the stone with seven eyes, meaning his omniscience, that he knows all things. And he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that, my brothers and sisters, was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial death of him on the cross in Calvary The fifth vision, chapter 4, is of a golden lampstand. At this point, it's reasonable to assume that Zechariah has been a subject to very much stress and most likely has fallen asleep from this experience. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me and said, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. The angel asked Zechariah, what do you see? He says, I see a a lampstand with gold and, and a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. And um, each of the lamps are on top of it and two olive trees by it, one on either side. The lamp stem is the type that was used in the Old Testament tabernacle. This is a, and the two olive trees are the supply of the olive oil. This is a picture of abundant, limitless supply of oil as it flows from the trees into the lamps. Then the angel has a word for Zerubbabel. A classic verse quoted by many from this particular passage. It says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is that the Lord's spirit, with the cooperation of the people, but the Lord's spirit is going to get this done. It's going to get this rebuild done. The angel also addressed the issue of the people's dissatisfaction with the temple, that it's not going to approach what it was under the reign of Solomon. But he says that God is pleased with this work for this point in time. In verses 10 to 14, the angel asks Zechariah's question, from verse four about the significance of the lamps and the identity of the olive trees. Well, the lamps are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole world. The trees are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. In the near term, this meant Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are the priest and the ruler. But for the far millennial kingdom, this meant Jesus Christ, who occupy both offices. The sixth vision, chapter five, is of a flying scroll which represents God's word. I can imagine what that looked like. It's fascinating. It measures 20 cubits long by 10 cubits wide. Now, in our dimensions, that's about um, cubits 18 inches, and it translates to 30 feet by 15 feet, which, fascinating to me, is the exact size of the holy place in the temple. This points to a divine standard by which man is going to be measured. The angel then says that this flying scroll is the curse that goes out over all the face of the land. Scholars believe that it's actually the Ten Commandments, as there's writing on both sides of it, but uh, two grave sins of Israel are highlighted here, swearing falsely and stealing, and that the judgment will be upon everyone who swears falsely or steals, and that they shall be cleaned out. The Lord is going to clean house, in effect, here. And the curse will enter the house of such sinners, Not even the comfort of their home is going to save the sinner from God's impending judgment. This is one stay at home order that won't work. The seventh vision, also in chapter 5, is of a woman in a basket. What's up with that? But this is a representation of sin, and the leaden cover over it represents restraint. The woman in the basket is symbolic of the final wickedness, the harlot of Babylon. See Revelation chapter 17. The angel, while looking at her, says to Zechariah, This is wickedness! And then Zechariah sees two women coming forward with, with the wings of a stork very, engaging in very much power. They had the wind in their wings, and indicative of great power, and the stork happens to be an impure animal as well. And they're, they're taking the basket to um, the land of Shinar, which is an older word for Babylon. This is a preclude of the final outpouring of wickedness that's going to happen at the end of time just before Christ returns. The eighth and final vision in chapter 6 is a vision of four chariots. Now we're bringing full circle to the four horses that we saw at the beginning of these visions. And we add the chariots, which symbolizes angels to swiftly carry out God's judgment. The chariots come out from between two mountains of bronze. The mountains are probably Mount Zion and Mount of Olives, which is where Christ will return to judge. This valley, called Jehoshaphat, could possibly be the Kidron Valley, between these two mountains. Jews, Christians, and even Muslims have long taught that this is where the last judgment will occur. The angel says the chariots are going out to the four winds of heaven. This is to execute judgment on behalf of the Lord of all the earth. The angels command, go, patrol the earth is permission for them to unleash the judgments as they do from Revelation chapters 6 through 19. At the conclusion of this vision, the angel cries to Zechariah, behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest. In other words, he's going around the different areas of, of uh, Jerusalem's enemies and settling the accounts. So they will actually not have incurred uh, this judgment until Christ's kingdom has been established in the millennial judgment. There's a lot of back and forth between the near term and the far term, as we'll see here. And to summarize these visions, God is very much aware of what's happening on earth the sins of the people and the sins of Israel's enemies and that such transgressions shall escalate in the climax of history. He will take actions of judgment against Israel's enemies. He will purge his people of their sins. He will set his anointed one, his son Jesus Christ, on the throne, and he will restore the city, Jerusalem, and nation of Israel to a final place of peace and prosperity. That's encouraging, because we know that God is already made good on so many prophecies, and he will do just what he says, Isaiah 40 and Isaiah fifty-five 11. And this will include those of us who are his faithful, redeemed followers. The conclusion of chapter 6 tells of Zechariah hearing directly from the Lord. Here's where the voice of God comes in. He's told to take three of the exiles of Babylon who have arrived to go up to the house of Zephaniah. They were to take silver and gold and to make an ornate crown to be placed on the head of Joshua the high priest. This is a symbolic act again with Joshua to represent again the man whose name is Branch, Jesus Christ. And it's a reference that the Branch will build the temple for the millennial kingdom and rule upon its throne. The crown is then to be put into the temple as a memorial of the men who came back from Babylon to help rebuild it and a reminder of the coming Messiah who will rule from that throne forever. These concluding verses supplement the fourth and fifth visions and keep going back to the coronation of Jesus Christ as priest and ruler. From chapter 7 forward until the conclusion of this book, there's a different tone, uh, Zechariah. He, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, he asked the people questions. They ask him about their fasting. and Should they still do the fast every year to commemorate the, the, uh, uh, the captivity in in um, Babylon. So the response of the Lord, he gives Zechariah four responses to this question. doesn't get to the answer right away, but he does get there. He gives two negative responses in chapter seven and two positive ones in chapter eight. First, (laughs) no surprise here, he checks their motives for fasting. Are they fasting for him or are they fasting for themselves? This is an echo of a call to repentance. He wants obedience. He's coming back to this theme again. He lists some righteous deeds of living, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against each other in their heart. Again, this goes back to some of the more practical elements of this prophecy. In chapter 8, the prophet gives a positive message of God's restoration for favor to the nation. He paints a marvelous picture of the restored city and what life will be like there. Both the very young and the very old will dwell safely there. Also is a reference made to Israel's final conversion. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Paul mentions this in Romans eleven twenty-five 25 to 27. And then the question of fasting is then addressed. He says there's another reversal here. He's saying that this time, instead of being a time of fasting, should be seasons of joy and cheerful feasts. Another point of righteousness is is, um, hit home here, and that is, therefore, love, truth, and peace. And this chapter concludes with a picture of the influence of the messianic kingdom being so strong that people from all around the world will come to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. In chapter 9, the tone changes again, and biblical scholars generally believe that chapters 9 through 14 come at a later point in Zechariah's ministry. It begins with a burden. Some translations say oracle, a heavy message portending doom with a series of judgments in the nations and the surrounding area of Israel. As MacArthur says, most understand this to be a prophecy about the famous Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great, as he goes through the nations that oppressed Israel and he overtakes them and conquers them. Yet on his journey back through Egypt, he goes through Jerusalem and through Israel and does not do them any harm. So uh, there's further implication that Messiah himself will allow no oppressor to march over Jerusalem. And the translation from Alexander to Christ can be understood this way. If God can use a pagan king to judge the nations and save Israel, how much more will he use his righteous Messiah? Both the second and first advents of Christ are proclaimed in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 9. And I've heard an analogy, I think it's really great. He doesn't know, you know, he's writing this, Zechariah, as, it, as the Holy Spirit is giving him the words to write, doesn't really know what the time frame is. I've heard the analogy you can stand on a mountain and see two mountains in the distance, and you think, hey, they look close together. But if you go to that second mountain, you'll see that the third one is really far apart. So Zechariah doesn't know this, but he does give an indication here of both the first and second comings of Christ. The fulfillment of uh, verse 9 occurs precisely as written on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as what we know on Palm Sunday, the week of his crucifixion and death. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. His universal kingdom of peace of his second advent is described in verse 10. Description of Christ's second advent, the establishment of his universal kingdom, continues in verses 11 through 15. And the theme of chapter 10, is a restoration for Israel and Judah. It begins with an exhortation for the people to ask for blessings of, of rain and, and food, and, but also to, to restore themselves with spiritual blessings as well. Then comes the condemnation of the idols, the household gods and diviners, their lies and their deceptions. This logically extends to condemnation and stern judgment on leaders, the Lord himself taking command and care of leadership of the flock, turning the sheep into a majestic steed in battle. The Lord will do all of this through his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. His importance is in leadership as the cornerstone. It's described as a ten peg, a battle bow. His authority insofar as every ruler will be under his jurisdiction. In the millennial kingdom, which is to come, he then addresses the issue of restoring and uniting the house of Judah and the house of Joseph, Israel, which have been divided since the days of Jeroboam after Solomon. They shall seek his name, they shall walk in his name. This is the complete spiritual restoration prophesied by Ezekiel. And the focus of chapter 11 is back to Messiah's first advent. While chapters 9 and 10 proclaim his glory in his second advent, this chapter presents a grim picture of his rejection at the first. In verses 4 to 6, the Lord gives... um, instructions to enact his role as being the shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. The reason is uh, their leader is outright rejection of the ways of God and the outright rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And in verse 7 to 14, Zechariah begins to act out his role as a rejected shepherd of God, symbolic of Christ at his advent, first advent. He takes two staffs, one called favor and one called union. The one that's named favor is of us grace, and one of union is uniting both Judah and Israel who have been divided. Then he says that he has uh, destroyed three uh, prophets, or three, um, excuse me, he has destroyed three shepherds in one month and dismissed them because they detested him. There's some question as to what this is about, but um, it, it is generally believed that he, this is the um, symbolic apply of Christ's rejection of the three offices of priest, elder, and scribe. He confronted those three groups frequently during his ministry, and all three offices were abolished at the start of the church age, and God replaced them with the priesthood of believers. Zechariah breaks the staff favor, which symbolizes the removal of God's protective grace, paving the way for Rome to destroy disobedient Israel in 70 AD. He then, this is important too, asked him in a mocking fashion what they think he is worth, Zechariah, the priest, the ruler, as their shepherd, if he's worth anything at all. And his answer, he's content with it because he knows who he is and where he's going. But the answer they give him, incredibly, is 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave at the time. And the Lord tells him to throw these 30 pieces of silver into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Those of us who know the life of Christ know that this prophecy was precisely filled on the night Jesus was crucified, as Judas Iscariot handed him over for 30 pieces of silver, and in his regret, he took the 30 pieces and threw them into the temple, which were then used to purchase the potter's field. This chapter concludes with a jump from Christ's first rejection at his first coming to events that immediately precede his second coming. There's that analogy of the two mountains again. With Christ, the true shepherd, removed, his place is taken by a foolish shepherd who goes in the complete opposite, of what a good shepherd would do. Many scholars believe that this to be a depiction of the Antichrist as prophesied by Daniel in uh, Daniel 9. As you can see, there's so many different apocalyptic events from so many parts of the Bible contained here. The worthless, foolish shepherd is condemned by Zechariah, a fierce judgment, and the remaining three chapters, 12 to 14, are the second oracle of the burden that Zechariah presents in the first having been in chapters nine to 11. So we're getting there. (laughs) Chapter 12 begins with a statement about God's might in creation of the heavens, the earth, and the spirit of man. This is to pretend the same God who's going to show his power, which will make Jerusalem triumph over the enemies as a siege ensues. Jerusalem will be a cup of staggering. People will try to overcome it and stagger like a drunk. It's also compared to a heavy stone that will injure anybody who tries to handle it. Another picture of his power and might comes through a fire pan which is used to light kindling, and, and Jerusalem will devour her enemies. Matthew Henry describes it this way. It is promised that Jerusalem shall be repeopled and replenished. They shall have a new Jerusalem on the same foundation, the same spot of ground with the old one. He will save the people from the country first, those from Jerusalem, making all of them strong, even the feeblest among them. And to wrap that all up, he will seek to destroy all all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the Lord God pours out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy that will finally bring Israel to him at the sign of Christ's second coming. The nation's response is that, here's another Old New Testament reference, they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, another prophecy that was precisely filled while on the cross, Christ's side was pierced by a Roman soldier. This is the moment where people begin to mourn and realize that, th- that their sin has, they are guilty of that. And this great mourning is reminiscent of the death of the righteous King Josiah, who was killed in the plain of Megiddo. The mourning will be by groups, first predominantly families, yet the implication of the mourning over sin will be personal for each one who looks upon Christ. The mourning will be all-inclusive, beginning with the rulers, then the priests, the ministers, and everyone else. Chapter 13 tells us that after the morning is over and their repentance for sin, the cleansing will be total and complete, a fountain open to cleanse them from all sin and uncleanness. In verses 7 and 9, again, Zechariah compresses the events of the first advent of Christ with the second. And the Lord of hosts casts judgment for sins upon Christ against the man who stands next to me. That's his son. And another prophecy is spoken, which is precisely filled in the New Testament. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes this same verse in Matthew 26, 31, while they were on the Mount of Olives just before his arrest. And after he was arrested, and there was the incident with Peter cutting off the ear of the servant Malchus, they all scattered. In verse 8 to 9, Christ returns for his second coming and enacts the sheep and goats' judgment. The two-thirds shall be judged and killed. The one-third will undergo a fiery testing. Matthew Henry again. They must be tried that their faith to be found to praise and honor. They must be refined from their dross. Their corruption must be purged out. They must be brightened and bettered. Then they will turn to God, and he will answer and give them victory. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Verse 9. Chapter 14 is the conclusion. It's a detailed account of the events of chapters 13, verses 8 and 9, and is a grand summation of the entire book, saying in a resounding way, Jesus is coming. It's a compilation of events described in Daniel, the Gospel according to Matthew, the book of Revelation, among many others. The chapter begins with the people of Jerusalem undergoing great turmoil and tribulation. This arouses the wrath of the Lord. You know, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then Jesus Christ will return to the Mount of Olives, which ignites the first of several topographical changes as the mountain will split in two, creating a wide valley, and, and living waters will flow in a desert area, and there will the whole land, with the exception of Jerusalem, shall be turned into a plain. I've stood on the Mount of Olives and looked down on Jerusalem, and it is very high in the air, even higher than Jerusalem, which is built on a hill. And it's incredible for me to think that all of that is going to be a plain except for the city of Jerusalem, that God will immediately enact these topographical changes as Christ returns. Jesus Christ then is established as the one and only king and ruler of all the earth, and the Lord will be their king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name will be one, it all comes together here, folks. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, as the nation of Israel now possesses the land given and promised to Abraham. It's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which promised the king from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. And the new covenant, which held the hope of spiritual redemption for Jew and Gentile. All of this will be fulfilled in, by, and through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This book concludes most wonderfully... With the presence of the Lord, it will be so strong and so sure there will be no separation of things holy and secular. We often hear in sermons that, "Yeah, this is our church time, this is our regular time, it's going to be all holy to the Lord. In this case, even the bells on the cows, the horses, and the pots and pans will be set forth as holy to the Lord. The land will be completely cleansed of defiled people. There will no longer be a traitor, a Canaanite, in the house of the Lord of the host that day. There will be a real and true house cleaning. So this is, as I said, really great stuff. And when Pastor Lucas first asked me to do this sermon, he says, you know, go ahead and do an overview of the book and then come back to anything on there that really strikes me as being important and something that really needs to set this whole message in context. and as I do, as I prepare sermons, I pray. And I'll pray throughout the whole preparation, and God will answer. And I knew there, were a lot of, there was a lot of good stuff here where I could, I could dwell on, but it didn't take me long to figure out where it was. And I found it in the very first six verses of chapter one. And that reminds me of a story I once heard by Dr. Charles Price at the Moody Bible Institute Founders Week about 15 years ago. He told a story about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and they had to go on a long journey through the woods. They set up camp overnight. Sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up and wakes, Watson, Watson, wake up. Watson was what is it, Holmes? He says, Watson, look up. Tell me what you see, and what does it mean? And Watson looks up and says, well, sir, I see a uh, uh, you know, the, the dark, clear sky, and there's no wind, so I don't think there's gonna be any rain, and, and I notice that uh, it's very, very dark, so it's probably somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m., I also see all the stars and the constellations and the galaxies, and what that means is that God is on his throne, He's sovereign, and all is well with the world. And Holmes goes, "Watson, you idiot, what it means is that someone has stolen our tent." <laughs> the moral of the story is, don't miss the obvious. <laughs> so it is the first six verses the call to repentance, and I'll read the first six verses. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, son of Ido, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and says, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. If We have heard from this series of the minor prophets, many of them include repentance as a part of their message. And this also includes the, ma- uh, the major prophets as well. I mean, go anywhere in the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Jonah, Haggai, Malachi. It's not difficult to find. And after 400 years of silence, after Malachi, John the Baptist occurs, uh, you know, appears. And what does he say? Repent. And a short time after that, Jesus Christ begins his ministry. And what does he say? Repent. Jesus Christ also says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 who don't think they need repentance. Jesus also said, just before he ascended into heaven, go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Peter in, in Acts chapter two says, repent and be baptized. Paul in Acts 17 says he commands men everywhere to repent. Peter also says in 2 Peter three, that all he, he desires that all should come to repentance. So it is a very familiar theme and Zechariah wastes no time putting it right in the very front of the book. And Matthew Henry again writes, before he, was, before he publishes the promise of mercy, he published calls of repentance, for the way of the Lord must be prepared. Law must first be preached, then the gospel. It's like you can't really appreciate the good news until you have the bad news first. Or another analogy that I've heard is that when you go out to buy a diamond, they always present the bright, shiny diamond against the dark background. That's what really brings it out. So in order to appreciate the good news that, Zech- that Zechariah is giving here, we need to be in a state of repentance and take those first six verses seriously. Our English word for repentance is derived from the Greek word metaneo, which according to Vine's Bible Dictionary means to change one's mind or purpose. Always in the New Testament, involving a change for living in the better. You know, I was going in this direction, then I stopped. Then I started going in that direction instead. And I, I was looking around the Bible, and the example of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is really a good example. That, that verse, he came to his senses. He had a change in his thinking. And he then offers fruits of repentance. He says, I'll go to my father. I'll be like one of his servants. I'll do what he says. I'll honor him by my obedience. And he recognized his brokenness like in Psalm 51, creating in me a clean heart and that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What we have to have here, folks, is the right heart for this, a recognition of your brokenness, your condition before a holy God, a condition as a sinner, and what God gives us a way out from that. So in order to have that, we must be rightly reconciled to God. And if you haven't done this, Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Embrace him by faith, knowing that if you do confess your sins and proclaim that he has been risen from the dead, you will be saved. He will spare you from these judgments, these cruel, harsh, horrific judgments in hell forever, and welcome you into the glory of his kingdom in heaven, also forever. If you haven't made that decision, make it today. If you've got questions, ask me. Ask the elders of the church. We'd be happy to walk you through what the redeemed, wonderful, tremendous, saved life through Jesus Christ is all about. And if you have repented, if you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, as the late Jerry Bridges said, appropriate your salvation. Put it to use. Second Peter 1 says, he has given us all things for life and godliness. This is, a, a, we were talking about a concept here that I, have heard defined as progressive sanctification. Repentance is a part of this. And progressive re- sanctification, as I was once told, is the continual triumph of humility over pride in God allowing certain seasons of defeat and discouragement and trial to purify us, to, to make us more humble. So the more humble, the more sanctified. That's really a great, a great way to look at it. And also, uh, repentance is a continual process. You've heard in, uh, it's just not something you do once or do in the couple of minutes before communion, but it is a continual process. If you recall in John 13, where Jesus is washing the feet and Peter has to have his head and the rest of his body and je- washed, and Jesus says, just the feet. Those who have already been saved and sanctified by the word, just the feet. So it is a continual process of confession of sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness but also in a, what I call discipleship accountability, James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another, and you will be healed. And faithfully read and study your Bible. And uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 is another verse. Examine yourselves to see if you were in the faith. And you'll know that the progressive sanctification is happening because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's and we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I use this expression a lot as I see in my life how God works, and how I don't do things I used to do. I have the fruits of repentance, and I'll say to myself, such were some of you, such were some of you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and that's how I know the Lord is working in me, and Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So pray every day. God will hear an answer. The message that he gives through Zechariah of a sure eternal hope still applies now in our time. This message is timeless. Just as the whole Bible is timeless. Plus, we know more fully about the Christ about which Zechariah wrote. And To wrap this up, I've got uh, two verses with uh, Titus and one from 1 Corinthians 15 that I think really puts this in New Testament terms for us. Titus 2, 11, 14 says, The grace of God has appeared, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, in the present age, while looking for the great hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And as far as doing our work for the Lord, or wondering does it mean anything? First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Amen. Hallelujah.